0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat.
1: Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. If you're a veteran, whether you've just finished 20 years or longer and you're retiring or you're finished with your first contract and you're coming back home, eventually need to find a job in the civilian workforce, or almost everybody does anyway. But that, as they say, is often easier said than done. You've spent the last few years, or decades anyway, in a completely different culture that may be very, very different from the one that you're going to be trying to step into as a civilian. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about the issues that are faced by returning veterans who are trying to find employment in the civilian workforce. What are the companies that are hiring them? What are the obstacles that you may face when you're trying to get a job in the first place? Maybe you don't have the interview skills. Maybe you don't quite understand how to phrase what it is that you've been doing in your military career in a way that would make that attractive to an employer. The good news is that there are organizations that help veterans do exactly this. Get that resume going, set up your LinkedIn profile, learn how to phrase and talk about yourself as opposed to just the team and the squad. It's complicated, but it can be done, and we've got a terrific guest on here for you. Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces, veterans, and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you, too federally insured by ncua we'll start talking about hiring heroes when positive parenting continues right after this
0: listen as a hiring manager i've got to tell you the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate sometimes they're a grad of life meet the grads of life
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Braun. My guest for this part of today's show is Christopher Plamp, who's the interim CEO of Higher Heroes USA. Christopher, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, glad to be here.
1: Tell us about the organization and what you folks are focused on.
2: Well, Higher Heroes USA is a, is a national or international five hundred one c three nonprofit what we focus on is transitioning military veterans and military spouses and gaining employment in the future of civilian careers.
1: Okay. And I mean, I, I remember growing up in on the West Coast in the Vietnam era, and returning veterans were not terribly well treated. I don't think they got the kind of respect that they deserved and, and things are significantly different than they are than they were then. But so tell us some of the issues that are faced by returning veterans when it comes to employment.
2: Well, One of the big things is that they don't know how to gain a civilian job. They've never written a resume. They normally don't have a plan. They don't know how to interview in a, for a civilian company. Um, and they don't know how to network, uh, even have a LinkedIn profile or any of this. So it's, it's almost a training gap that they have when they leave the military. And the military's done a job at trying to help them in terms of going through TAP but the key is is that when they reach the problem when a resume is not getting hits online when they go into an interview and it goes poorly we're there to support them so we're going to help them through those steps um, but it's really that they don't know how to do that task and so we help them through that to take the skills that they've learned and the education they've gotten while they've been in the military and enable them to get that good civilian career even though as you're as you said today Companies want to hire veterans. There's a great wave of companies out there that that want to bring them in, but the veterans don't know how to talk about themselves. They don't know how mm-hmm. to talk about their military service. We help them do that.
1: Well, somebody who's been in a high-tech field or something involved that, that has naturally transferable skills would probably have an easier time talking about what they've been doing, but how do you help somebody who's been in infantry or... You know, been been a tank driver or a, a rifleman in a, in a marine company someplace. How do they take what they've learned and make that even remotely applicable and attractive to an employer?
2: Well, I'll tell you that they don't know what they know, and it may sound silly, but they don't understand. Everybody that has been through basic training in the military has common skills. They have common skills of followership. They have common skills of teamwork. These these soft skills. Are things that companies find incredibly valuable, but in the military, you view that as natural because everybody has gone through the training the ability to read a technical manual, the ability to follow orders, the ability to move forward, the ability to adapt when when there's when it's tough all these things are inherent capabilities that they have if if you've been on tanks, hey, you have been responsible for let's say driving a seventy million dollar machine you know going forward if if you have worked on an airplane, you have technical skills. If you've been an infantryman, you've learned how to, to move forward. You've learned how to work as a team to accomplish a common objective. These are skills that can go onto a resume. It's not only those technical skills, it's also those soft skills.
1: And so you have workshops or classes, or how does it work if, if somebody is, is preparing to separate or they've already separated and they're, well, hopefully we'll get them before they run into trouble, but how do, how do they begin to connect with you?
2: So, first of all, you're absolutely right. Hopefully, we get them as they're transitioning um, so that we can avoid any gap of unemployment or underemployment, which is a big problem now for the military. Um, what they do is they register online at www.hireheroes.com. And one of the things that makes us unique is that we'll work virtually with them. So, they can be even overseas if they're transitioning out of Germany or even if they're in Japan or if they're KONUS, um, any of those locations, we can connect with them. We're going to talk with them over the phone. We're going to chat with them on text message. We're going to work with them via email. They'll be assigned to a specific transition specialist that they'll work through the entire time. They'll put them through that training time that I talked about, the resume and the interview and the networking, and then they're going to stick with them as as they go through the rest of it. So we'll work with them no matter where they are. If they've gotten out and they've gone home to Muskegon, Michigan, we can work with them. If they're sitting at Fort Bragg, we can work with them.
1: Okay, and so what are the biggest issues that you face? I mean in in dealing with service members who are, are looking for or about to be looking for employment.
2: Well the biggest thing is to is to get them to ask for help. Um it, it's one of these where we're taught to be independent when we're in the military, we're 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 taught to be um, you know, self sufficient, is to get out and reach and say, Hey, this is something that I don't know. So the first thing is to get them to register and sign up. The second thing is to keep them focused on the transition to convince them that it is an effort. You know, I always viewed it as when I was transitioning, it was my job to find a job. And if if they view it like that, then it works a lot better. And they have to take ownership. They have to take ownership of their transition and realize that this is the beginning of the next part of their life. It's going to be their career, and and they've got to grab onto that. That's why we always talk about that we empower them um, as opposed to place them in a job you place them in a job you've you've gotten them a job and you've gotten a paycheck if you empower them to understand how to get into a career then they can do that time and time again and they'll be successful the rest of their lives
1: how do you help folks and transfer I guess maybe not, we'll put it this way, not transfer some of the stuff that they learned in the military. And I'm wondering about this. When when they come back and people who've been in the military, they understand that you need to show up at 0700 hours for a particular thing, and you're going to stay there until a particular time, and then there's a lunch break, and then you get back. Uh, And the, the civilian workplace maybe is not quite so rigid in that way. How do you help people to be able to function and to be a little bit more laid back about What's going on in the civilian workforce?
2: Well, the first thing we, we look for is we look for what's a good, what's a good place for them to go. We try to, keep their, we try to keep their mind open. A lot show up and they say, well, I've been an infantryman, and so that means that I want to go into security. Well, the first thing you realize is that that is probably – that may not be the right path for you. Um, about 60% of the people that show up, when we ask them, right when they show up, they say, this is what I want to do. What they end up doing is completely different. And we talk about finding your cultural fit. Do you want that more laid back? Do you want that open style of individualistic workplace? Or do you really want to go in some place like a defense contractor or the police or the fire where it's going to be more rigid like that? You know, find your spot. And then we talk to them about unlearning some of the stuff. In other words, you don't want to say 1300 if you're talking about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, (laughs) You do want to be able – you know you do also need to be able to talk to talk about yourself in an interview because in the military it's all about we the team did it, the squadron did it, the platoon did it, and here, when you're interviewing, it's got to be yourself and you you're going to drive your career as opposed to somebody else watching over and telling you what the next step is, unlearning some of that and then teaching them what it's going to be like in the civilian workforce is a critical part of what we do.
1: Well, what about times when you can't really talk about yourself or you can't really talk about the mission if you've come back from a special forces deployment and what you've been doing is stuff that you'd have to have a security clearance to find out about? Or if you've been in combat and and talking about some of the things that you did while you were deployed make you really uncomfortable? How do you help guys deal with that, guys and gals?
2: I'll tell you, coming, uh, part of my career was in the special operations world, and so that speaks a lot to me. And really what you have to do is find out what is that right way to talk about it. You can still talk about the skills that you utilized, the accomplishments that you had, even if you don't want to talk about the down and dirty of the combat situation, or you can't talk about some of the specialized missions that you were on if you were in a classified location. Um, but talking about, hey, you know we I did use teamwork in this situation, you know, I still use this type of stuff. There are ways to talk about it, but I' tell you it is tough, and especially for the amount of the percentage in the military that has gone and deployed these days um and also to not give you know to not feed into that kind of persona that is out there through some of the movies and all the rest that 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 that, that overall uh, the military is a little bit broken coming home these days. Um, we are people that are good. We're going to be great for companies. We're going to work very well. Um, And talk about those positive aspects of it.
1: I'm talking with Christopher Plamp, who's the interim CEO of Higher Heroes USA. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Christopher. I want to get into some of the more specifics about uh, the issues that are facing guys when they're coming back. And by guys, I mean men and women who are coming back from deployment. Uh, I'm Armin Brant. You're listening to Positive Parenting.
3: Come on. Smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling.
1: Maybe he's not a smiler.
3: Yeah. Maybe he's just not
0: a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase.
3: Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help.
0: Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Christopher Plamp, who's the interim CEO of Higher Heroes USA. And give us a website, Christopher.
2: It's www.higherheroesusa.org.
1: Okay, good. I want to make sure people hear that a few times. And are, are there specific issues that are different for female returning vets than male vets?
2: And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, We actually had, based upon a donation from the Saban Foundation out in California last year, we've been running a series of workshops just for female veterans and transitioning female service members. And what we found is that they do face additional barriers as they transition out of military and into civilian life. They have been in a male-dominated career. Um, They have had to adapt to that, and as they transition into civilian life, we found out that they do not want to be as open about what they did. They do not integrate as well. Um, and it's more of a challenge for them. Um, it's something that they can overcome, and obviously they do, and they get great civilian careers. Um, but we do know that they have additional challenges as they transition. Well,
1: what are those? I mean, yeah. you, you mentioned not, not well, the, well, the male dominated workforce not fitting in quite. Why are they not fitting in quite as well? You'd think it would be easier.
2: Well, I'll tell you, this is some of the challenge that we're working through, is trying to understand that. Um, we know that they, a lot of them get out and they have uh, greater family responsibilities than even g- gotten out to raise a family. There is a traditional um, thought that they will have about what their responsibilities are if they have children. Um, they do not want to seek for help because they have over time had to be very, very self-sufficient in the military in terms of uh, being a woman in the military. And as such, it makes them more reticent to go out and seek the help from organizations uh, such as ours um, to find that next step.
1: Okay. And so how do you help them with that? What What's What are you providing for them to get them to look at the world a little bit of a different way, in, in a way that's going to help them to achieve their goal?
2: To be honest, the best thing that we found is them talking to other female veterans that are either going through the same thing or have already succeeded. It's that mentorship role that a lot of times makes a big difference. We have a a number of uh, transitioned uh, women veterans in our organization, along with, as I said, we bring these workshops together, and we let them talk amongst themselves as we're teaching them, and we found that that is hugely beneficial to them.
1: Okay. And how do you help people to deal with, I mean, well, if, if you're coming back to a place where there's not a lot of military families or there's not a lot of military presence which is something in, in a lot of California, for example. When somebody comes back to the to the Bay Area of California where there really is there are no more military bases anymore and it's hard to find somebody who knows anybody around here who who has had anything to do with the military and there's this this sense of, well, I've seen the military on T V or I've seen them in movies and you know, you're dealing with people who just have no clue and may have preconceived notions that you're a baby killer or of whatever it is that they that they have. I mean, you, you have to find yourself explaining your whole life to, to somebody who just has no clue. That's got to be an important part of the training that you're providing.
2: Well, how to talk about your military service and how to talk about yourself is a critical portion of, of putting yourself forward. Um, we also work with companies, which is on the other side to talk to them about how to stand up a veteran hiring initiative. And companies that do not have a robust military presence inside of themselves sometimes struggle to know how to bring in the newly transitioned military members. Um, This getting a job and getting involved with a company is part of the transition into getting into the community because it is a foundational bedrock portion where you know you're going to have an income, you know you're going to start meeting with people, you're going to find out more about the local community uh, just by having that job. Um, and it depends upon where you're going. Fortunately, these days, as opposed to kind of like you talked about in the Vietnam era, there, it's much more welcoming across the entire country in terms of a transition military member. Um, it doesn't mean there's going to be, be places that it's more difficult and places that is it's um, less difficult, to transition into but that's also a way you can reach out to other organizations that work specifically on community integration Um, and so we one of the things we do is we link with other nonprofits that do that that either give you opportunities to volunteer in your community or give you opportunities to meet with other veterans in your community to engage in that social network Um, and we find that that is very effective
1: i know that you're you're out there Working with companies to encourage them to hire more veterans, and you're helping them to understand why that's such an important thing there are i'm sure companies that whether it's it's a written policy or an unwritten policy or whether it 's just individuals may have something against veterans. Um, how do you help somebody a a veteran who's out there applying for jobs who comes in contact with a company where he feels or she feels that there's really a, an anti-veteran or anti-military bias, which I would imagine would be in, something that's illegal. It
2: absolutely is. They cannot discriminate based upon their military service. But just like, just like age or sex or anything else, you will still see that discrimination happen whether it's illegal or not. One of the big things that we tell veterans or military spouses as they're looking for the next job is to make sure that when you're interviewing, make sure when you're looking at the company, that it's a two-way street. It is, they need you for the skills that you have, but it also needs to be the right company culture for you. And it's not always taking that first job offer, which is sometimes the hardest thing to tell them, is that sounds great, but boy, you just told me that during the interview, or you just told me when you visited, this is the feeling that you got. Maybe that isn't the right place for you. Maybe that isn't the right job for you.
1: And... Your counselors are helping people through the entire process, from job training and, and acquiring skills, through resume writing and everything else. Right.
2: So our our transition specialists help them through the resume writing and the application and the networking and the and all the rest. We also partner with other nonprofits and other non and other um, training programs out there, and also for education. Where we may – the advice that we give them may be, hey, if that's really where you want to go, if you want to um, go into IT, then what you need to do is either go get these certifications, Mm -hmm. go get this education, and then then go for that job. So we're always going to try to steer them the right way. Now, we stay in that core in the career counseling, the resume building, the networking, but we have partnerships with multiple training programs with uh, some education people that will counsel you for uh, online universities with uh, over 450 companies. Then the other part of our our company that I think is really great is we have about 750 volunteers across the United States in corporate America. And so if you want to get into a certain field, we'll be able to find one of our volunteers who will give you an hour-long counseling in terms of, hey – this is what it takes to get in this career field. Here's what the interview is going to be like. Here's the down and dirty. Many times they come out of those going, like, I really do need to go back to school or I need to go get a certification or I need to go get this training. And, uh, and then we'll support them even through all of that, even if that's a couple of years. Um, and we'll still be connected with them until that time that they get into the job that they want.
1: Give us a little bit of a sense of how many employers you've worked with.
2: Well, we have about 450 partnered employers that we work with, um, but the key is is that we're trying to empower the veterans and the military spouses to find their job. So about 50% of our uh, clients go into small – you know, just it's the small businesses that really drive America, and they'll get into those. We also obviously get a lot into back into the federal government, um, other big retailers, Amazon, Walmart, uh, these types of companies also uh, work with ours.
1: And you've hired or not hired exactly, but you've helped <laughs> integrate anyway, more than 20,000 people, right?
2: Yes, actually, last week, we just went over our 24,000 that, uh, wow. that we've certified that we've uh, helped getting into a new job.
1: Okay. So what's the best way? I think you you mentioned this at the very beginning, but let's let's go over this again. But the the best way for somebody who's coming up at the end of a, of a contract, they've they've decided that they want to separate whether they're retiring or whether they're just finishing up a tour and that's that's going to be it for them. Uh how do they start connecting with you?
2: It's very simple. You just go online and you go to www.hireheroesusa.org. And then there'll be a big banner that says to register, or you look for uh, the registration link on the homepage, and that will take you right into our system to start asking for help.
1: Okay. And some people, an online experience is going to work well, and other people really could benefit from face-to-face meetings with, with someone. Does that exist?
2: Absolutely. And just go on there and look for services, and then it'll have a list of all the workshops that we're doing around the United States.
1: Okay, what, what goes on in the workshops?
2: During a workshop, it's a one-day event. We're going to get to know you. We're going to have some transition specialists there. We're going to go over what your career aspirations are. Then we're going to start to look at if you have any any sort of resume, look at your training projects or products, start to talk to you about what path seems the best. We'll normally bring in some employers and some HR professionals to run a panel to talk to you about the system, and we might have some volunteers there. We'll help you get a headshot. Um, so that you'll have a great picture to put on LinkedIn, and then we'll also then sign you up to work with those transition specialists on our online system.
1: So the online job services like LinkedIn and other things like that are – Indeed.com are important parts of the job search portfolio?
2: Absolutely. LinkedIn is, is – actually we found out of, after talking with LinkedIn that the military is one of the highest per capita users of LinkedIn. They tend to use that a lot because they haven't built a local network or they haven't, as they've been going through, built a network that is going to be in that industry. They're probably coming into that industry from, from the military. So it's a way for them to reach out and stay connected with their military network as they spread out throughout the United States and the world. It's also a great way to connect with other military people who are already in the job or the company that you're looking to get to. So we find their, the military and the veterans' utilization of, of LinkedIn to be very high and very successful.
1: Christopher Plamp is the interim CEO of Higher Heroes USA, and the website, again, is higherheroesusa.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my daughter is almost two, and being a dad has been the greatest experience of my life. But lately, I look at my child and feel absolutely nothing. What is wrong with me, and what can I do to get my mojo back? Over the course of the 20-plus years I've been writing about parenting, there have been only a few things that I'm not sure I want my kids to see or hear, And this may be one of them, but you can listen if you promise not to tell my kids. In this column and my books and radio shows and other work, I often talk about the joys and anxieties and fears and intense feelings of love that are all part of being a father. Like most men, your experience, despite the ups and downs, has been overwhelmingly positive, and you wouldn't trade it for anything. In fact, being a dad has become such an integral part of your life that you probably can't imagine not being one, right? But then came that day, completely out of the blue, when you look at your child and realize that the intense love you felt just the day before had been replaced by a numb, hollow feeling, and the delight you took in raising her and being part of her life had been supplanted by complete and utter ambivalence. You're overburdened, underappreciated, and you can hardly remember the last time you had a conversation with someone who knows more than 40 words. And now you feel like chucking this whole dad thing and starting a new life somewhere else, as far away from your kids as you can. Does that sound about right? Well, Fortunately, those feelings of ambivalence usually last only a few minutes or a few hours. Sometimes, though, they go on for days or even weeks. But no matter how long they last, one thing is pretty much guaranteed. The instant after the ambivalence starts, you'll get hit by feelings of guilt. For, as you put it, having lost your mojo in the first place and those guilty feelings will stick around long after the ambivalence is gone. After all, goes the internal monologue, if I'm not a completely committed father 100% of the time, I must not be cut out for the job at all. Most mothers are quite familiar with this ambivalence-slash-guilt pattern, but because they're generally more willing to discuss their worries and concerns with other mothers, they learn rather quickly that it comes with the territory. Sure, like you, they feel bad about it, Or maybe even a little scared, but at least they know they're not alone. Men, on the other hand, don't learn this lesson. If we have a few other fathers with whom we can talk things over, we're incredibly lucky, but it's still pretty unlikely that we'll actually talk to them about this. It's already hard enough to ask for advice about diaper changing, discipline, or nutrition, but having ambivalent feelings seems like a serious weakness, perhaps even a character flaw, or at least it sure feels like one. And we're certainly not going to expose any weaknesses or character flaws to another man who might just laugh anyway, right? Hopefully, just hearing this has been enough to convince you, at least a little, that your changing feelings toward your children are completely normal. But if you're still worried or you need more reassurance, force yourself to spend a few minutes talking to someone about what you're feeling. A close friend, your clergyman, your therapist, or even partner, although it'll be hard to talk to her, but she will know exactly what you're talking about. And remember this, you're going to have these feelings dozens of times over the course of your fatherhood, so you'd better get used to dealing with them now. If you've got a comment or a question or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please send us an email through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you, but don't go anywhere because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brought
0: after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. This heavyweight bout is about to begin The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe And the champ is wearing uh, Looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office And from the back we can Ooh, that's not pretty Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. That champ's not wasting ooh, any time. Ooh, ooh, oh! It's over! This fight is over! Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to AHRQ.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? AHRQ.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to AHRQ.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Gail Gross's journey with grief began in April of 1990 when she received the heartbreaking phone call in the middle of the night that changed her life irrevocably. Dawn, her 24-year-old daughter, had been discovered dead in her apartment in Los Angeles. She had died unexpectedly in her sleep from an undetected heart condition. That tragedy catapulted Gail into a deep inversion process that launched an intimate exploration of bereavement, which she says is a unique and debilitating form of grief. In the wake of death, shock, devastation, and utter distraction, she desperately tried to make sense of and even comprehend the loss, not only of her daughter, but also of her perceived past, present, and future. As part of her personal coping process, she gained advanced degrees in education and psychology and ultimately discovered that if you allow yourself to have your grief rather than resist it, acceptance, personal reconstruction, and restoration are possible. Your life, though irrevocably changed, can become even more vital than before if you meet death and say yes to life. We'll be speaking with Dr. Gail Gross when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Did you just
0: look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel... And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds? At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Gail Gross, who's the author of The Only Way Out is Through, A Ten-Step Journey from Grief grief to Wholeness. Gail, uh, Gail, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me, Armin.
1: So let's start at the beginning, and I mean, this will sound like a horribly basic question and maybe even a silly question to some people, but how do you define grief?
3: Well, you know, grief is the experience that we all go through when we're approaching a transition it's the feeling of loss and sadness and it is a tension that builds up within us until we move into a new new stage and everyone feels grief when they transition into anything so When you have a a loss of a job or going to a new job or selling a house or buying a new house or breaking up with a mate, finding a new mate, divorce, death, loss of a a child or fight with a friend, whatever the change is, grief signals that change, that we are going to let go of something and move towards something else. Except that sadness is so paralyzing that many people never can move forward and just stay, not just don't where they are, but go back to an earlier stage of development where they feel a comfort zone.
1: Yeah, That's fascinating. I, I was not expecting you to say that because <laughs> I, I, I had never really thought about grief being associated with every transition.
3: Every transition, all day long, Armin, you go through little depths. You, someone says something nice to you, and you feel happy. Someone says something uncomfortable or not nice to you, and you feel sad. And the feeling in between is grief. That space in between. That, and and truthfully, if we won't, it, when we're when we're moving towards letting go of something. And we're afraid to let go, say you're in a bad relationship and you don't want to let it go because what's familiar is better than what is out there perhaps that you don't know and the fear of the unknown keeps you in the bad relationship, that's when the grief becomes intense so that it's trying to move you forward
1: mm-hmm. even though
3: you don't want to move yourself
1: but it sounds like the vast majority of experiences with grief that we have are almost unnoticed.
3: Yes, in in a sense. We describe it as sadness. We say we're out of sorts. We feel discombobulated. We um, can't get a grip on things. We need to be by ourselves. We withdraw. We call it depression many times. Mm -hmm. And in, in fact, we misuse the word depression quite a bit. I had a friend who had clinical depression, and he said to me, clinical depression is like being in a cave with a teaspoon, and you're using that teaspoon to carve your way out of a cave. And I'll never forget that description. But sadness, deep sadness, is really a part of the process of growth. Just like a butterfly goes into a cocoon, and then completely, completely emulsifies, we don't realize that, and comes out totally different, Uh, the caterpillar rather, goes into a cocoon, and completely emulsifies, and comes out as something completely different, a butterfly. And that is really what we do, we transform, we go through a transformation. Jung called it the transcendent function, he said... We percolate, if you will, in our own psyche, and then something new is born from that, and that something new is our transformation.
1: Hmm. Fascinating, <laughs> and your particular journey and this—this this, you had been dealing with these issues before, obviously, as as we all have. But you had a, a particularly jarring. Uh, experience that set you on the road to writing this book. Uh, Tell us about that from from 1990.
3: Yes. Our daughter died, our daughter Dawn, died from cardiomyopathy with fibrosis, a heart virus. And we were on a trip and got that proverbial call in the middle of the night. And in that second, from one second of feeling fine to the phone call, our entire life changed. And... We were psychologically, my husband and I, completely deconstructed, very vulnerable and frightened. And you shift almost immediately when such a trauma uh, occurs to an earlier stage, even as young as seven, when you feel not just vulnerable but incapacitated, fearful, feeling that you're hopeless and helpless. And that type of tragedy really can paralyze you to never move forward in your life. And so being a psychologist, not at that time, but being a psychologist now, I have formatted a process that I used in my own journey. I would never have discussed my own journey in such a personal way if I hadn't been on a particular um, um, television show, really, it was um, uh, on Fox, and I was asked to comment on children and death and terrorism. And I received a terrible email from a mother who had lost a child, and she excoriated me. What did I know about the loss of a child, how completely devastating that was? And I actually understood where she was coming from because the the loss of a child, the death of someone you love, a a mate, a child, is so deconstructing that if someone hasn't been there, they really can't meet you at that edge, no matter how compassionate, no matter how empathetic, which is why groups like Compassionate Friends are so successful because they are other people like you who have been there, who have walked this journey and they can reach their hand out to you, and you, therefore, can take it. And that's what made me write my own story, not just my own process, because I realized that no one would see it as authentic unless I explained that right. I had walked that walk myself.
1: Yeah, I think you talk about in, in somewhere in the book, I can't remember exactly where it was, that that uh, books on grief tend to be either, either memoirs or science, and they, they tend to be— Somewhat detached right. in a lot of ways, which yeah. yours yours combines memoir and science and is definitely not detached yes. um, I,
3: in fact, I asked my son to write uh, a a chapter for me on his experience because I think what's lacking in so many in so many books such as this and and in our own experience as parents. When a child dies, is the recognition that siblings suffer terribly. But because they've never seen their parents fragile before, they suppress their suffering. And they do things to prop up their parents rather than deal with their own feelings. And the danger of that is that they will stay there and not be able to get on with their life, stay in that sadness, stay in that disconnect, Mm -hmm. and that what we would simply call depression, yeah. but it's really grief. Well, and so I asked my son to talk about his experience so that it, it would bring to the surface that a sibling feels in his own way the same loss.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's in many ways it's the same, but it's also probably quite different.
3: Well, it's different in that the sibling relationship is different. And many times there is lack of resolution. It's the last time you saw each other or the things you didn't say or the things you wished you had. And so there's this relationship that has stopped that, in a sense, is, is so close because siblings actually, especially if they are close, as my children were, Really, are very very much together like a little team. They expect their parents to die one day, and they expect that they will go on with the family. And not only that, but most people don't re- really think about this. But biologically, siblings are closer than parent and child, because right, siblings, right. siblings are actually carrying mother's genes and father's genes. Exactly. So together, they are. Biologically closer, which is why, if a child needs anything um, in the healthcare world from a, um, a donor, the best donor is the SIB.
1: Right, right. Um, talking with Gail Gross, who is the author of "The Only Way Out Is Through: A Ten-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness." We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking with Gail.
0: <laughs> I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Gail Gross, who's the author of "The Only Way Out Is Through: A Ten-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness." I want you to to start us. We're not going to be able to get through all ten of the steps, and I don't think we we need to. But how did you begin to get from this deconstructed state that you you talked about, this yeah. com- complete devastation and and horror? to begin to find your way back?
3: Well, you know, I started with the idea of courage and choice. You know, Winston Churchill's great line, if you're going through through hell, keep going. And unless you move forward, you're frozen where you are. And you move back often, often to old patterns and old ways of behaving because there's a comfort zone there, and you really don't feel... Safe in this new place that that your psyche has thrown you and at some point every parent has to decide to live because the loss of a child is so devastating you just don't think you can go on and so it's a conscious choice to go on and if you're going to go on you have to decide how to do it how to make the most of your life and that is very much a Jungian concept you know Carl Jung was the student of Freud, and he believed very much in inner work, in accessing your unconscious, and, and stated quite clearly that the unconscious was really who we are. It's the most of who we are, and that we think the ego is who we are, but actually it's the function of us. The unconscious creates the ego, and then we get out of bed, we go to work, we get married, we have children or not, we, we live our lives in, in a healthy or not function. But the unconscious is actually organizing our environment. That's the most of who we are. And it's always trying to have a conversation with us. And the only way it reaches us is through symbol and archetype. And that's through dreams or meditation or inner work, journaling, walking, mm-hmm. being alone. You know that line in the Bible, be still and know that I am God. Only by quieting yourself can you hear your inner voice, and only by listening to your inner voice can you find your true vocation. How can
1: you even begin to hear an inner voice when you're being bombarded with the the noise and the, the shock of what's happened?
3: Yes, when you're devastated, completely devastated, it's easy, actually, to quiet yourself because you're leaking energy, it takes so much energy to, to grieve that you recognize you're very, very tired a lot of the time. That's part of the the sadness. And, and it, it's very much a part of depression. And these biological things set in at the moment of, of trauma to save your life, your psychological life. Because by leaking energy, you slow down. And you're psyche is slowing you down so that you don't die from shock in in a sense. And in in fact, some parents do die from shock and they have this this occasion of instant death where it, the trauma is too much and they just die. They just have a heart attack. And so it, it sort of works the way voodoo works or things mm-hmm. like that where something frightens you and you just stop living. So you know, your psyche wants you to live, and it slows you down, and you get tired. And the key is to allow yourself to have your grief. I almost called this book, People Who Grieve Can Live Again. Yeah. And, and the key is to let yourself grieve, to let it wash over you, to go out if you want, to stay in if you want, to cry if you want, to laugh if you want, not to feel guilty. Most parents feel guilty because the primary role of a parent is to save their child. You know, every parent says, i throw myself in front of a car or a train for my child. And in most cases, they would. At the end of the day, however, we don't have a crystal ball. Nobody knows how things are going to work out. If we did, we'd all do the right things all the time. But because we don't, we do the best we can with either our genetic or, or environmental background and patterns or with the choices we make that are conscious always you know doing the best we can with the information mm-hmm. so and then the so first so strategy, what's
1: so that you were talking about courage and choice and and moving first, con- continuing to move through so okay. after you've you've gotten to the point where you can hear the voice
3: right or your
1: your own so inner the, your inner it, voice what what do you do then
3: well the the courage and choice is the decision to live and then the hearing your own voice is the inner work so that you know in a psychological mode what model what actually is going on is you've been cast out of this safe cocoon that you live in or i would call it a persona when you hear of the trauma of death and now you're cast into this place with no familiar scaffolding or structures in psychology we call it the neutral zone i call it the Valley of Despair. Now here is where all of your disowned material, your shadow material lives. It's also where all the inner work can happen, the journaling, the dream journal, the dream paying attention to your dreams because that is the language of your unconscious which is trying to have a conversation with you. Meditating, prayer, contemplation, it is in this quiet place that you can access your own unconscious and now if you do inner work in this place by yourself you will be moved forward into a larger persona automatically not at first not right away at first you're in shock and you're in shock for about a year and then you you're required to be real to recognize not to be to recognize death not in the model of magical thinking hoping your child will turn up in your kitchen but or your mate or whatever, but knowing that this person that you love is dead and you can go on. And not only can you go on, but you can go on more vitally than you were before because you know something that most people don't know. You know how fragile life is. Mm-hmm. And all of the energy that you use to suppress your feelings in this valley of despair is released because you're doing this inner work. Right. And then it's returned to you, because all the fertility for the next stage of your life is in the disowned material, the suppressed material, what Jung would call the shadow material.
1: Now, what and what so about when you take that Gail, back,
3: your libido returns.
1: Gail, what, what about people, though, who don't have any interest in doing the inner work? They just want to move on. Can they you do have, that?
3: No. Um, people do move on but they don't move on in, in a way that serves them because a lot of your vitality, your libido, your energy for life is used up, that creative energy, in suppressing or holding down your feelings. So people who suppress their feelings and repress their feelings and just move on and don't want to do don't want to I know many families never want to talk about their loss. They never want to uh, mention it again. They don't want to think about it. But it's there. But it's there without finding a home. So it's, it's pushed inside, and it does a lot of damage inside, free-floating anxiety, depression. But if we confront it by doing this inner work, we can find a place for it to live inside. We integrate it back consciously. And when we do that, we no longer project it out onto our mates, our other children, our friends. But if we just move forward without being conscious, we'll move forward without that vitality. And by moving forward in that way, we move forward backwards. We become more childish. We go back to the old patterns that are familiar to us, and we often lose our relationships because, especially husbands and wives, men and women are quite different. Our psyches are different. Our brains are different. Together we make a whole, but we look at things differently. A woman takes her grief home. She's living it 24-7. A man goes to the office. He compartmentalizes, and that's natural to both. So it's very difficult to grieve with your mate. The the styles are different. And as a result, 80% of all couples that lose a child, for example, also lose each other. So those Mm -hmm. that have lost so much already lose the person they loved. But if they become conscious, they can consciously do things to reestablish the vitality and love of their relationship.
1: Gail Gross is the author of The Only Way Out is Through a Ten-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arthur. And before we go, a special thanks to Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families, federally insured by NCUA.